Peace, peace, and welcome to another dynamic, incredible, informative discussion. Um, I'm super excited to launch into and learn from uh, this man's story, Charles Hudson. I first actually saw, he, he doesn't remember this, like people are in front of him all the time, but <laughs> I first, <laughs> first saw Charles Hudson speaking at an event in Oakland that we brought our students to. Like it must have been like back in 2014 or 2015. He was talking to a group of young black men about his journey uh, coming. There were all students going to college and he was the keynote speaker. And uh, he was someone that I, I paid attention to since then. It's been really dope to watch from afar all the things that he's gotten off the ground and accomplished and refreshing to see him uh, be the change in terms of what it means to invest and, and be a VC leader. Um, he's super smart too. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. Great Thank to have you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I can barely contain my laughter. That was way too kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, man. I was actually um, you know, doing a little research before our discussion and I saw a, a TV interview you did with The Exchange and you needed a mic to drop as you were speaking, there was like some mic dropping that needed to happen because <laughs> you had said something about uh, becoming a VC. And you were like, yeah, I got two degrees from Stanford. I used to be a partner at a company. For some reason, it's been harder. <laughs> and, and so I was just kind of like, oh, this whole new wave about supporting, um, you know, Black tech founders or just Black businesses is, you know, obviously uptick tremendously since uh, the murder of George Floyd, but you've been doing it, you know, like you've been, I was looking at your company profile. So anyway, you run a VC company, like talk a little about the company. Then I kind of want to dig back in into current events. Yeah. So I Firm, started, I should say, sorry. Yeah, no, no. Company's fine. Mm-hmm. We started, well, I started Precursor five years ago. Originally it was just me. Now we've got a team of three, me, Sydney and Ayana. Um, it's awesome. But, you know, I, I'd been a partner at another venture firm called Uncork, used to be called SoftTech. When I joined my partner, Jeff, we were a teeny tiny firm, $15 million under management, which by venture capital standards is very small. A decade later, they have half a billion dollars under management. And what I noticed is when we first started fundraising, for the fund, when I joined Jeff, like it was hard, it was hard to raise our third fund. And we had already invested in Fitbit, which hadn't gone public, but was, was doing really well. We had Eventbrite, which would eventually later go public. Um, we had some really good companies in the portfolio. It was hard to raise. We got that fund done. And then sort of, we had this breakthrough where, you know, fund four was not nearly as hard to raise as fund three. And I think we sort of got in this place where we were established and as our fund got bigger, I wanted to start a fund that I thought could get back to the, the old work that I enjoyed doing, which is really simple. So a precursor, what we look for is founders that are at the earliest stage possible. So you've got an idea for what you want to build, but maybe you don't even have a prototype. You probably don't have a launched product, but you've got some other things in your favor. Normally, a really big idea that's easy to communicate that even I can understand. And you know, we'll give people 250K and work with them with, for a year with the eye of getting to a place where there's enough evidence about the product that the founder should keep going with the idea that they've started off mm. looking to pursue. And uh, it just turns out when you have a lens that says, 
I will work with people that I don't know who are outside of my network, who don't have launched products and who don't have like everything figured out. You end up with a dramatically larger canvas of people you can back. Mm. And I feel like it just felt to me that venture was really honing in on this really fixed model, which was, you know, we were mostly giving seed fund capital to people who'd been entrepreneurs before, had worked at companies that were kind of famous, went to a really small, narrow set of schools and had very narrow set of academic training. And I was like, this can't be right. I just generally believe the universe of people who can be successful entrepreneurs in technology is larger than we've historically believed in venture. And I felt like the only way I could really do that in the style that I wanted was to start my own firm and a firm that would be kind of much smaller in terms of headcount and the dollars that we manage. Yeah, there's there's a lot in that um, that's connected to ongoing conversations about how uh, uninclusive, non-inclusive tech is and uh, frustrations that I hear from founders about access to venture. Um, and so you're now on the investing end. And so there's, I mean, there's so many different directions we can take this conversation, but 250,000, you work for the companies for a year. I was just looking at the company. I was looking at Precursor's website and it's like a lot of, it's very diverse. The types of, the, the faces of the people, the companies are listed in alphabetical order, but the faces of everybody, the founder is above the company name. And so when you look through um, the website, when I was looking at the website, I was like, oh, this is like my public school. It's like, <laughs> it's like hella people of color. Hella <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it, it doesn't look like um, at all how I know a, a tech workforce looks like. What is the selection rate based on like or how many people are actually, how many people that yeah. you actually get money? So I can tell you last year we were approached by 3,000 companies and I think we invested in like 30. So it's like 1% which I think is pretty typical for most venture firms, like most venture firms. Um, they might not see 3,000 companies. It might be they meet 1,000 companies and they pick 10. But we're, we're at a, that's sort of the model that works for us. And it's interesting what you mentioned about our website. Like what I tell everyone about Precursor is that like we're an intentional firm. Like we, we do things on purpose. We make mistakes sometimes, to be honest. Like not everything works. But most of the things we do, there's a reason behind them. And with the website, that was very intentional. I think a lot of venture capitalists, if you ask them, they say, what's the most important thing about it? Oh, it's the founders. We're in business for founders. And you go to their website and what do you see? Like a bunch of logos. I'm like, well, that's not people. Those are companies. That's different. Or you see a bunch of pictures of the people who, wrote, who work at the fund. I'm like, again, like that's, a, that's an important piece of the puzzle. But I just wanted to send people a message that like when we say we're really about the people, we're going to put the people front and center. And I thought it was interesting to go with a model where we'd say we'd make pictures of the founders the primary visual element of the site. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and But we wanted people to feel like is whether you're a white male founder or a black female founder, you should see people who look like you in our portfolio. And we wanted to send a message to people that Precursor is a firm for everyone. Like mm-hmm. everyone is welcome here and we want to invest in everyone. Like this feels courageous in a way. I mean, I mean, you're like you're in this, you're in this business to to make money, and so people are giving you money, and there's a proven track record on how to make money, right? Yeah. And so, it, and it looks like what you said happens. They started companies, they went to a narrow set of schools, and so you step you stepped out on your own to say, mm-hmm. "Nah, I'm gonna sort of chart a new path 
and do everything intentionally and bag people that don't traditionally look like tech and uh, we're going to make money. It's like, and do it, right? How long were you sort of sitting with this before you finally decided to step out and make it happen? And, and how many other firms would you say are sort of similar to yours? I, it's interesting. I tell people all the time, starting a venture fund is not like starting every other kind of business. Like our product is like money, this bun, weird bundle of money and advice and support, which is different than, you know, if your product's an app or a service. The one thing I will say that's true about venture starting a venture fund that is like starting a company, the whole picture won't be known to you when you start. There will be things that are revealed to you when you're ready to see them. And like what I realized about Precursor is I went to this thinking, the main reason I'm starting this fund is I think there's a class of entrepreneur. And like, this is my canonical example. If you're employee number five at Pinterest, you probably know the founder of Pinterest. He knows you. If you were starting a company, he might pick up the phone and make some calls for you. He could speak personally about his experience working with you. And the VCs he emails are going to take that call. If you're employee 500 at Pinterest, you might be equally talented, equally smart, have an equally good idea, but it's probably less likely that you've ever been in the board meeting, that you've ever met the investors of the company, or that, and this is not to pick on Pinterest, this is just like generically any tech company. The odds are the employee doesn't have this, the employee 500 doesn't have the same relationship with the CEO that the first 25 or 50 people do. And so I was like, well, if you're that 500th employee and you're a smart person and no one's going to extend their social capital to help you get a meeting, how do you get in the door? And I was like, what if you had a firm that really said, like, we think that there's valuable insights and cool companies to be built by people up and down the employee badge number count at famous companies. There's people who worked at bad startups that were not successful, who still can be good founders. There's people who've never done startups who could be good founders. And I think for me, a lot of this is rooted in like my fundamental optimism about people. And the one thing I've learned about being a founder, having been a founder myself, is oftentimes no one, including you yourself, knows what you're capable of, like what that reserve of like superpower energy is until you are put in a position where you have to use it as a founder. And so I, I like naively sometimes believe every single person we back has way more entrepreneurial capacity and ability to be successful than they even realize often at the time that we give them money. Mm. If we were right all the time, this job would be easy. But I go into every investment thinking, this person has so much more capacity for leadership than they've already even shown evidence of that like once they're put in a position where they have to figure this stuff out, they're going to rise to the occasion and they're going to surprise people. Mm -hmm. And that enables us, at least me, to confidently invest in people that other people say, I don't get it. Look at that person's background or like they don't have this piece of experience. I'm like, yeah, but I think they're going to figure it out. Is that decision, when you come to that decision, like how much is it form a leg and how much of it is, it is like instinct? Ooh, it's a tough question to answer. Um, oh, I asked Charles a tough question. This is a tough question to answer. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you asked that. And I've learned more about this by having people on my team and trying to explain to them my thought process I would say of the 25 companies that we do a year, five of them are pure instinct. Like I talked to the founder, like I have three companies in our portfolio where I committed 15 minutes into, or less into the first meeting. And these were not people I knew before. These were like new people to me. The, it just like something was vibrating. I was like, this all makes so much sense. This is clearly a good idea. We just, we have to put ourselves in the yes column for this one. And like, we can't really wait. 
So the other 15, there's a pattern. I wouldn't say it's formulaic. I mean, I'm really looking for founders that I think have a unique insight on the problem that they're trying to solve. And that insight has to be a big enough insight that you can build a company around it. So if someone says, oh, you know, Zoom doesn't have this button. I'm like, well, Zoom could build the button. Like maybe they'll have the button in a year. You don't have the button either. You're the founder. You're telling them you're going to build it. They don't have it. So it's a race. Will you build it first or will they build it first? Um, So I'm looking for people who have an insight around a problem, something they feel like in the world just hasn't been well solved, that they're uniquely qualified to address. And where I also think their understanding of the market landscape that they're walking into gives them some advantage. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times it ends up being business model innovations are a big, big part of our portfolio. Like, oh, all of our competitors are ad supported and we're doing a subscription product. Or everybody else sells this product for a lot of money and it's complicated. We're going to make an equivalent product that's simple and easier to use. And so it's those kinds of things. It tends not to be, I'm a scientist and I built this novel technology or I built this novel, I discovered this drug or I, I'm not a scientist. So I, I tend not to do those. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I touched on something before, like other firms that are making the intention and to have that diverse portfolio that's similar to yours or, because I, I mean, I, I just don't know them all as well, but yeah. you're the only one that exists to me that, that's got to do it. Yeah. Like, you, know? <laughs> I, you know, I think, I would say we exist on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. I would say there's firms like Kapor Capital and Backstage that I think have an even more strong, explicit message around the impact that they want to have with the investing work that they do and the audience that they really want to serve. I think in DVC, what Bryce is doing is really interesting and special. And I think he's building... Um, a portfolio of founders that looks really different from venture at large in terms of the kinds of businesses they back, where they're located, how they think about building and scaling those businesses. I think what Keisha Cash is doing at Impact America Fund is really interesting. She's a super talented general partner and like more people should know about her work because I think she's awesome. But I, you know, I would say something you said before, I still think People get hung up on this idea that like you can invest in a broad set of people without sacrificing quality. And I think there's still a, a viewpoint among some limited partners and among some venture capitalists that like this whole notion of like investing in women or people of color, it has to either be political, a political statement, or it's a return sacrificing decision that you're making. And I'm like, well, what if none of that's true? What if like the net result of like restricting capital to a relatively narrow, and look, to be clear, I just want to be super, super honest. There are venture firms out there whose returns are amazing that are bad at diversity. So I'm not going to sit here and say like, you cannot have a successful venture fund if you don't invest in women and people of color, because there's plenty of evidence that historically that's been possible. Now the question is like, will that work going forward? I'm pretty skeptical that going forward, that strategy is going to work. I have some real concerns, just if you look at where population dynamics are going, college graduation trends, like the people who are starting com- color, people who are starting companies today are more female and more racially diverse. So I, I think that's, that's hard to do. But I do think there's still this vision. I said, well, wait a minute, if 98% of people have effectively been locked out of venture capital because like, they don't fit the pattern, how do we know that that other 98% of people doesn't have a bunch of gems in that pool? Like we were very good, I think, at identifying like, and look, I say this as someone who's also part of the problem. I went to some of the schools and worked at some of the places that are very common in venture. But we're, I think venture capital is very good at assessing two guys who went to Stanford and worked at Google and their idea. We know how to do that very well. 
venture capital is not as good. Venture capitalists as an industry, we're not as good at analyzing two HBCU founders who are building a product for a predominantly Black audience. And I think what we're really bad at doing, which I think people don't talk about, is assessing Black female founders who are building products for mainstream, non-African-American audiences, like a Black woman who's just building a regular old SaaS company. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. in venture, you don't, you don't see that that often. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just think we're very clear at Precursor. Like I think we can achieve very, very good, strong economic returns and have a portfolio that on a racial and gender basis that we're proud of. I don't think there's a conflict and I'm unwilling to make a trade-off. Mm-hmm. If I thought if I thought this would generate lower returns, I would structure the firm really differently. That's that's so dope. And and in, in terms of the the types of companies, right? So you said two hundred fifty thousand for a year. Is there a company that's too big to qualify, or yes. do you invest in any company? No, we have some people where like the capital needs for their business, they need five million dollars to get mm-hmm. started. Generally speaking, those rounds are too big for us. We're a small fund, and I'll tell the founder right up front, like, hey, I think you're raising more money that makes sense for our model. And it's important I'll tell people like, I won't say you're raising too much money. You might really need 5 million, I would say, but for our little fund, writing a 250K check into a $5 million round cannot be our regular business process. We can do it every now and then, but like it can't be a regular business process. And, and so for the, for the 30 that gets selected, does, it, does that happen throughout the year or a certain time of the year? We try very hard to make it even and smooth two companies every month, every now and then you do three. What ends up happening is it's, it's more random than that. I have some weeks where I, every company I meet I think is amazing. <laughs> I have some weeks where I'm like, all these companies are, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just not for me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so historically it's been bunchy. Like we'll have a month where we'll find five or six companies that are all amazing and then we'll have a dry month. I try really hard to keep the firm on an even pace. Because if you think about it, it's, we have this big assembly line where, you know, you have a bunch of companies that are going to get on. It's, the companies that get on at the same time tend to get off at the same time. So if you mm-hmm. put 10 companies in the portfolio in one month, those 10 companies are going to move together as a cohort for a year. And you're going to have like a lot of work to do versus mm-hmm. if you do two a month, it, it's kind of a steady, it's kind of a steady stream. Yeah. And, and, back, and back to this point about not sacrificing sort of the mission and the values and, and believing that the returns are there. And in the brief interview that I saw you, you do, um, you talked about essentially it being more difficult. And you didn't say this explicitly, but like you're, you're qualified, uh, you have the expertise, you have the network and people aren't investing. It's, it's been harder for you to raise. And so you're kind of like fighting on both ends, like you're fighting, get the investment dollars to deploy. And then you're doing it with companies that are having a hard time, a harder time with their raises. And so it's kind of like, like, what, what's that been like? That it's a really interesting life experience. So what I tell our team all the time is nothing about precursor was designed to be easy. And like my general view is, we've encountered a lot of resistance in trying to get the firm off the ground, but I think it's because what we're doing is different. And if you're doing something different, like you should actually expect resistance. And instead of being frustrated by it, you should say, this is evidence that the thing I'm doing makes people really uncomfortable. And, and the thing we didn't have time to go into in that interview is, I don't think all of our fundraising challenges are because I'm Black. There's things about our model that just don't fit what people's expectations. So, you know, the people who invest in venture funds, limited partners, they have their own worldview about how to run a venture fund. Many of them think, 
the best way to run a venture firm is to have a relatively small portfolio where you own a large percentage of every company that you're invested in. And it makes sense, right? Like if you own 10% of a company that sells for a billion dollars, you get $100 million. You own 1%, you get 10. It's a lot easier to generate the kind of returns that they want to see if you own a large chunk of companies that are successful. My argument is that like strategy should be stage dependent. If you're going to invest in late stage companies, the overall pool of them is smaller. So if you're like, hey, I only want to invest in companies that have done $50 million in revenue. There's only so many companies that clear that bar. You should have a smaller portfolio. You should put more money to work because those companies have already proven quite a bit to get there. Mm-hmm. At the stage where I invest, you know, we're, we're happy if 60 to 75% of the companies we invest in make it to the next stage. That's mm-hmm. pretty good for us. Mm-hmm. To me, that necessitates a larger portfolio because like, we are, we're accepting that because of the limited amount of information we have about these companies, they won't all succeed. And I think the challenge when you're a black founder or a black entrepreneur of any type, whether it's a fund manager or a restaurant owner, when things are hard, you don't know how much of this resistance I'm facing is like because of like my race or my gender. And how much of it is that like people just don't like what I'm doing. And I have to say, like, there's been a lot of LPs that just told me, we just don't like your model. It doesn't fit what we think successful venture firms look like. And I've told them, well, by the time we both have enough data, and we're approaching that point. It's going to be too late for those people to, to, join, our, to join our firm. Like they, we won't have room at the end, so to speak. So mm-hmm. I've just sort of taken comfort that like, I believe our model is the right one. I expect resistance because like, what we're doing is kind of unorthodox. And thankfully, with a relatively small fund, we only need to convince a small number of people that this is a good idea. And, and in order to qualify to invest, you have to, have, you have to be a qualified investor, right? To yep. have money in precursor and that's typically like a million dollars like what are the general qualifications for yeah we we have the accredited investor threshold for our fund so mm-hmm. i won't go into there's like 15 different ways to qualify the most common one if you're an individual is i think you have to have made two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year two years in a row mm-hmm. or have a million dollar net worth not including real estate assets most of our investors in the fund though are foundations we have a lot of foundation investors we have some family offices we have some we're thankful that we have some individual VCs at other firms who I've gotten to know who've been extremely helpful to us in building out the platform. Um, I just feel fortunate that we've had their support. And um, hopefully, like, as we continue to prove that this works, this is like the whole reason to do it. It's like, I think we're going to eventually prove to people that this works. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it for five years. Internally, we can see that it's working. Like, we see the companies that are performing. We can see the returns. It's not yet obvious. I think even to all of my investors that it's working. But I think sometime in the next two to three years, we're going to start delivering the returns that I think are going to make it unambiguously clear that our model works for us. It doesn't mean it would work for everybody, but I'm basically only concerned with proving that like the way that we practice venture capital at Precursor works for us. If other people want to emulate it, like great. But like I need to first prove that it works for us. For the... The, the way that the round works and I asked you to do some one-on-one for yeah. us because, you know, we want to be venture capitalists like you one day. <laughs> yeah, of course. So uh, how, how big is the existing fund? So our last fund is $31 million. Okay. Um, we're, you, we're, I can't talk about the thing that we're working on now because the SEC is very particular about this, but, but we raised a $15 million fund first and a $31 million fund was our second okay. fund. And so the way it works is that 
you get a bunch of money, you put it out in the streets. And then I'm, I'm using hip hop terms. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how long does it take to, spend, to invest down a fund? Yeah. A lot of my investors say spend. So spend is an okay word. <laughs> okay. Um, no. So the way, the way, the, here's the deal I have with my investors. I'll just give you like the, the kind of the high level. They commit some amount of money to $31 million. I'm like, here's the deal. You guys give me the $31 million. I'm going to skim a little bit off the top because I have to run the organization. But don't worry, I'm going to pay you all these, these expenses back before I take any profits. And um, I'm going to go invest in probably 75 companies. We'll write a first check to all of them. Some of them will graduate to a place where they deserve a second check. We'll write them a second check. And some of them will eventually make it all the way to IPO or M&A and they'll return money to us. The way we're going to make this work is I'm going to take the 31 and until I give you back your full 31, all the money that comes back in proceeds, I have to push back out to you. Like I don't get any, I don't get any of the upside until I've returned all of your money plus the money that I've used to run the firm. After that, we'll split every dollar 80-20. So you guys get 80 and I get 20. So the goal in a venture fund is like, you know, so if I have a $31 million fund and we can somehow return, turn that 31 into 93, it would be pretty good for everybody who works at Precursor. We'd give them the 31 back and we would split the other 62, 80, 20. And like people at Precursor would do pretty well. We're doing three, just to give the audience a sense, like doing a 3X, that's called a 3X gross return. So it's 3X gross, you back out the original, that'd be a 2X net fund. A 2X net fund is a good fund. It's not a legendary fund. It's a good fund though. Mm-hmm. And so like the goal for every venture capitalist is not to do a one and a half or two X fund is to get to a four or five, six, 10 X fund. Because if you do one of those in your career, you're kind of good forever, right. like financially, like then you're doing the work cause you enjoy it. But financially, like you're, you're good and your kids are good. And like a lot of people in your ecosystem are good mm-hmm. for a very long time, but it's hard to do a high single digit multiple fund. Very difficult. Yeah, but there's, and, and there's all this, there's all this um, money in entertainment, and uh, there's there's a lot of what I've seen recently is like athletes trying to get involved in uh, tech. Um, and you mentioned that you have like sort of a small, a smaller fund. What has been the sort of engagement with with that community around yeah. behind you? So we have some athletes as limited partners in the fund. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Like, they're so cool. Like, I love them. They're like some of my favorite people. Um, we have some people that manage money on behalf of athletes involved in the fund. Okay. Um, we haven't done as much with entertainers yet. I think it's interesting. Like, they just come from a different world. Um, and I think their perspective is so different. But the thing I enjoy about speaking with the athletes and entertainers that we get access to you know, I think VCs think they understand pop culture. Athletes and entertainers understand pop culture. Mm. And there's things you can talk to them about around pop culture that you can talk to them about a consumer app. They're like, Pe- people aren't going to use that. And they're speaking from a position like a different kind of authority, not from someone who's seen a thousand apps or services, but someone who's like, I'm embedded in this world and ecosystem. And I know what, I know what would work. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing I'll say is like most of the athletes and entertainers that I talk to, they're hungry to understand how this business works. Like they're not, they're not content to just hand me money and say, go do that. They want to learn. They want to learn how to do it themselves. Mm. They really do. And I think that's an important piece of the puzzle for them. I think it's going to allow several of them to find second 
careers as investors that are maybe as successful as their first careers as entertainers and athletes. Yeah, I'm just basically trying to say everybody that's black in entertainment should be investing in precursors. <laughs> we would love to speak with any of them. Um, and look, most of, our, most of our relationships with people that are entertainers, in most cases, they're not investors in the fund, but we pass opportunities back and forth. And sometimes they'll call me and just say, hey, I'm looking at this company. Did you look at this? Like, I got a bunch of questions. Like, I have some... And that's been, um, that's been, that's been like a fun experience for me to get to know them. Mm-hmm. And if they become investors, great. If they decide they want to invest on their own, that's fine too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I appreciate uh, just your, your willingness to do this interview. You made yourself accessible and uh, available. And I think that that generosity is deeply appreciated. And I think um, ends up paying off in the, in the long run. And the, the intention behind what you're doing is, is super dope. I'm wondering like where all that came from. How do you get to be so nice? You're from Detroit. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, so, you, so you're from Detroit. <laughs> well, I'm technically from I'm technically from Southfield. Like my Detroit friends would be like, "Don't claim Detroit oh, from my the city." Bad. I'm from the that first northern Detroit. suburb. My wife, my wife is from the city, and she reminds me all the time, "You are not from the city." <laughs> what, what was your honest. What was your upbringing like? Uh, I grew up just north of the city of Detroit, and um, I went to public school for elementary school, and then I went to private school for middle school and high school. And honestly, going to private school really opened my eyes. I had never seen money like that. Like, mm-hmm. like our family was okay, but like we, I hadn't seen money like that. And I had just never been around environment, like an environment like that. It was, you know, 300 acre private school. It's big. I have a lot of land and mm-hmm. it's old, it's old school, like East Coast looking private school in the middle of the suburbs of Detroit. I'll also just say like, it was a great environment for me because it was a good place to be a nerd. It was like a very reading, writing, arts-oriented school. And for me, it was really formative, just in terms of what I learned. And um, I don't know, I just feel like in my life, I've been fortunate to have a handful of people do things for me on my behalf without me asking. And like, it's put me in places I wouldn't have otherwise been. And I feel like, what's the point of having social capital or power, whatever you want to call it, and like not using it? Like, why like sit on it? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I'm fortunate to have gotten where I am, wherever that is, and I'm still figuring the stuff out. And I feel like if I can give back and help other people, it's like my duty and responsibility because like I wouldn't be here if people hadn't done that for me. I don't know. I, we try to like also inspire that spirit in the portfolio companies that we back. Which ones do you think right now are like going to be like, they're going to knock it out the park in, in incredible, interesting ways? Very hard to answer. Many times the answer I give is a function of who have I talked to most recently that told me good news. Uh, but there, there's, I mean, we have a number of great companies and it's hard to choose. I'll pick a couple that I think are interesting. We have a company, Incredible Health, that's run by Iman. She's a fantastic entrepreneur, like incredibly strong operator, really proud to be associated with that company. We have a company called Carrot Fertility that's run by Tammy Sun, also really impressive, strong founder, She's built a great business um, helping people deal with, you know, family planning. She's like an excellent founder. Um, we have a company, a company called Noyo that builds um, HR infrastructure. Shannon and Dennis are just an amazing team and really excited about where that company is going. And then, you know, I've got like soft spot for the guys at The Athletic. They've done a great job building that business. And as a sports fan, that's a product that like really speaks to me. The team at Clearbank is, I think, doing some fantastic work in terms of making financial 
products available to entrepreneurs themselves so that they can build their businesses without having to sell chunks of it to people like me. And then, you know, I'm always excited about like the most recent investments we've made because like I'm in the moment of peak optimism, right? The day you the day you send the money, you think everything's going to be amazing. Right. So, yeah. you know, we have 202 companies in the portfolio. Quite a few of them are doing extremely well. I kind of want to get into um, what life is like for you, like in San Francisco and some of the issues that the city is facing. And, you know, optimism right now is sort of in short supply, given everything that, or I guess it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> everything that the world is experiencing. Um, so that's a, that's a very uh, blessed place to be in. When we first, our first extended conversation was at uh, a mutual friend's birthday party. Yeah. And we were talking about school and, and you know that I'm on the school board in San mm-hmm. Francisco. And uh, we were talking about education and like issues in the city. I want to talk about a little about issues in San Francisco. Then I want to kind of broaden out to just like, I want to riff on things related to the black community. Yeah. Nationally. Yeah. Um, What's it like raising a family in San Francisco? (laughs) It's such a hard question to answer. Mostly because I recognize that I'm very fortunate. We live in a good neighborhood in San Francisco that's very safe, that has a lot of, it's very family friendly. We have enough space. We have a good childcare setup. So like we have all of the boxes ticked in my household. So we're lucky. I think if you relax any of those constraints, it's hard. I think about San Francisco, I think one of the big challenges is like, you know, almost overnight, we became a tech hub. Like when I started in, when I, I mean, this might be inappropriate to say, when I started in the VC industry in the late 90s, early 2000s, as like a young kid, nobody serious had their company in San Francisco. If you were serious, you were in Milpitas or you were in Mountain View, you were in some like, office park slaving away paying a dollar a square foot in rent like you were not like only people that had offices in san francisco were like design studios agencies and like people who weren't really serious about starting companies Hmm. 20 years later it's the mecca and it just brings in on a daily basis so many people who come to san francisco to work and maybe retire to other places in the evening it just creates a lot of stress in the city so i think the the thing that's it's interesting to me is like, I feel like I know and have this like really rich black professional community that's part of my personal life, which in a city that has a remarkably small and shrinking, I think, black population, I feel like it's weird. My son has a lot of black friends mm-hmm. through our social circle. More more than I had when I lived in Michigan. <laughs> Which is like outside of my family, okay. outside of my family. And right. so I think there are things like, look, we lived in the mission for a while, and like there were things my son saw when he was little that I would prefer to him to not see. But he would have seen those eventually. Like life life comes at you fast sometimes. So I, I guess I'm kind of more of the of the mindset that like I'm committed to staying in San Francisco with my family and like working to make it a better place for more people than I am sort of throwing up my hands and saying like, I don't want to deal with this. This is too much. What do you think about the direction of the city right now? I'm actually really optimistic. You know, like I, I, I moved here from, you know, Michigan. Detroit shrunk by two thirds, roughly. Cities are not designed to shrink, right? Like there's lots of things that work for 2 million people that don't work for 700,000 people, like transit and like basic services. I think cities also aren't meant to grow as fast as San Francisco has grown. 
and to experience that kind of pressure. We have a lot of um, unhoused people. We have high rent. We have like clogged trans. Like we have, we have growing pains. Like everywhere you look in San Francisco, growing pains. And um, I, I'm, opt- I'm an optimist that we can fix these things. I really am. Because I think San Francisco is like such a special, wonderful place to be. People will stay and fight to fix it. I think there's some places where people are just like, I'm out of here. Like, this isn't a great place to be. I don't want to be here. Um, and I think like, you know, it's hard to fix cities when there isn't like a natural draw. But I think this is a place worth fighting for. And I think we can we can solve, we can solve some of the challenges with education, which you know way more about than I do. We can chart, we can fix some of the things around uh, around housing and like we we can do better. And I I, I think we will. Is there any conversations around activating venture capital? to address some of the like city challenges? I think venture capitalists have like a fraught relationship with government, yeah. which is that like some companies are designed to directly challenge government's provision of services. Whether that's, I think, I think if you look at what we saw in transit, what we saw were, were like, you know, private companies that in some cases decided to compete with the city in transit, in some cases decided they didn't like the legal and regulatory landscape and decided to just change it or ignore it. And I think that like some level of disruption can be healthy and outright flaunting of the laws and rules is like not something I encourage our portfolio companies to do. So I think like venture capitalists are very good at, I think, identifying market-based solutions. Not every problem we have in San Francisco is like the solution is like a market efficiency argument. Mm-hmm. There's some things that are like maybe don't fit that frame, and maybe as venture capitalists, we should be willing to admit um, we're not experts in solving every problem. I hear that. There's um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna close out in a few minutes. You're you're a very very busy guy, and you have a family and all of that. And I I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the broader uh, things related to the black community. Mm-hmm. One of the big things I've always harped on is the importance of, of ownership. And when we first spoke, I was talking to you about Master P because uh, <laughs> because I love Master P. Yeah. If he invested you, if, if you know Master P, <laughs> ask Master P to come on the podcast if he's a friend of yours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I bring him up because um, I, I think that like you represent that mentality in the work that you're doing. When I see people striking out on their own versus working at a company, I really root for the person striking out on their own. And this whole idea of like buying buying back the block or um, investing in our own or like trying to up, uplift our community. How do you think about those sort of like those ideas and um, what do you think is, is needed in our community to to activate it more like like what you've done? I, I'm still learning. But I think if you zoom out and think like, well, what were some of the what were some of the like basically stated goals of structural racism? it was to deny black people the ability to accumulate wealth. And you think about things like redlining and you think about some of these other policies, like there's a reason you compound them over time. There's a reason that we're behind. And I think this notion that it's purely a lack of effort is like laughable if it weren't so sad. Like there were specific policies designed to keep black people out of, out of certain professions, out of certain neighborhoods, out of certain industries. And like, you can't, make up for 400 years of structured elimination of access overnight. But I think ownership is really important. 
And this is also, I think, part of the thing I've enjoyed about talking to the athletes and entertainers. I think they understand that like owning their brand and owning them, owning like I like, look, as a Pistons fan, it's hard for me to be a big LeBron James fan, I'll be honest. I, I think like he's the prototype. I really do. I think he's very smart about business. I think he's very smart about his brand. And I think he's going to end up owning a much bigger a much bigger share of the value that he creates than maybe previous generations of athletes. Mm. And so when I think about the black community, I think one of the big challenges that I see is I meet lots of talented black executives who I think would make incredible founders, incredible startup leaders, but they're in, they're in positions that pay well in the short term and that are prestigious, but may or may not give them a real path to building generational wealth. Mm. And I think that's a hard conversation because a lot of them work very hard to get where they are. And the thought of leaving a prestigious, visible position to go work at something that's less prestigious and less visible, it's a hard trade to make. It really is. But I think that's kind of what we need. Mm-hmm. Like, I could have stayed at my old firm. It's a good firm. The returns are very good. The pay was good. And I would have done well. But this is like a chance to build something that I think could like really have a different kind of impact on my family and other people's families. I think the same thing is true of being a founder. And I like, like my real hope is that some of the, the Black founders that we've backed are so successful that it changes people's mindset about what they're missing out on. And like, this is why I think it's going to change the whole thing. When I came to the Valley in the late 90s, like a lot of people were like, well, you can't have a South Asian person as your CEO. Customers won't buy from them. It makes them uncomfortable. Like you got to have like someone more appropriate as the CEO. Mm. Then people started realizing, wow, there's a lot of like Chinese and Indian American and immigrant entrepreneurs who are just crushing it. And if we like insist on this policy, we're going to miss out on a lot of great opportunities. And I think this, we're, we're in like the second phase of that with female entrepreneurs. People are realizing, wow, female entrepreneurs are great. They've always been great. You just didn't find them. It's not like they suddenly became great. They've always been great. And my like real expectation is we will get there on race, but I think it's, it's going to be slower. So I really want us as a community to think about wealth building because I think that's how you have multi-generational impact. And like we live in a capitalist country and like, Wealthy people have the ability to influence institutions in unique and special ways. And I hope that like once we find ourselves in positions of authority and wealth, that we we don't forget about our responsibility to the community. Is is there is there an influence or a set of influences that you say would what that kind of help you get to that place? Cause you you say you had a comfortable position, you stepped out. Um, is there someone you could you could point to is like, okay, when I heard, when I learned from this person, I was like, I gotta do it, I gotta make this real. Uh, there's two, there's a couple people. One is like Mitch and Frida Kapoor helped me a lot, actually. For a long time, I was like, you know, like racial justice. It's like, just not my thing. Like I, this, I have enough problems already as like a black professional, like trying to make it in the world. I don't need more stuff to work on. And, um, you know, spending a lot of time with them helped me understand, like, sometimes the work chooses you. You don't choose it, it chooses you. And I was like, well, this work has chosen me. I can't not do it. It's like my responsibility as one of a, a small number of people who are in a position to do something. Um, I had a chance one time to talk to Robert Smith on the phone about Vista and like what he's done with that firm to me is like really inspiring as someone who's in the, in like a, an investing role. Um, it was really um, 
just like eye-opening and like inspiring. Like I don't know a better word to use than that. Those are those are probably two people who've had like I'd say an outsized impact on me, just in terms of like. And in one case, it was an hour phone call. It wasn't like we have like some ongoing relationship. It was it was very brief, but impactful. And that's the thing I always remember is that like we touch a lot of people at Precursor, and sometimes an hour that we spend with someone could have like a really big impact on that person or that individual and how they think about the world and how they think about what's possible. And every year, like I meet new people who have like an impact on my thinking and an impact on like, I'd say my team, like my two teammates have like, they push me really hard to make Precursor a better place. And like, it wouldn't be as good of a place to work. Uh, we wouldn't be as good at investing if I didn't have their, their sort of constant pushing to make us better. Man, I'm going to ask you a few final questions, quick yeah. rapid fire questions, and then okay. I'm going to let you go. All okay. right. All right. What was your uh, worst moment in business? Oh, shutting down my own company when it failed was like not fun. That's like the worst for sure. Uh, who's going to win the presidential election? Uh, anybody who runs against the current president. <laughs> <laughs> um, You're into hip hop. Yeah. Who are your top five rappers? Woo! Oh God, man! It's like <laughs> I'm gonna get roasted for, no matter what I say. Um, Nas, Talib Kweli, Kendrick Lamar, Eric B, Rakim. That's five, but yeah. Well, I'll, yeah, <laughs> the group. I'll just say Rakim. Well, no, <laughs> and then I probably would say. Um, I don't know. I always struggle with this question because then, and then I would say like the roots as a group. Because then what ends up happening is then like an hour that I'm like, oh, you know what I should have said. So it's, <laughs> it's hard. It's also a no win question. So yeah. Do you have a motto? Last one. Do you have a motto? One thing I I tell my team all the time is like, there's a lot of things in life we can't control. The one thing that we can't control is like the attitude we we bring to our work every day. It's like the one thing that is <clears throat> totally under our control. It doesn't mean that like outside influences can't impact your mood. But like, this is something I do actually believe like we can control the attitude that people are like, you're always in a good mood. I'm like, uh, not always, most days, but there's some days it's very hard. It takes real intentionality to say like, I, in spite of everything that's happening, I'm going to approach my work today with a good attitude. And I'm going to bring like my best self to this work in spite of everything that's happening around me. And some days it's hard, especially lately. This is Charles Hudson on Cook on Quarantine. Uh, I think I can retire now. I've, I've talked to one of my, one of the heroes. I, wanted, I really wanted to get on um, the podcast. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you for, for the time today. Thank you um, so much. I'm going to put up on the screen so people can see his Twitter account. He has a website where he recently started blogging again. Mm-hmm. So we're going to keep him on the hook for keep spreading a good message <laughs> uh, so we can uh, learn, observe, and, and hopefully follow in, in his footsteps. Thank you for the work you do, for the values of representing. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another special edition of Cook on Quarantine. This is obviously on the Cook on Monday Morning channel. And at Cook on Monday Morning, we believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. As everyone knows, we sort of started this edition of Cook on Quarantine at the beginning of Shelter in Place. I took a sort of a hiatus from the podcast and ever since quarantine has been extended, I've just upped the amount of podcasts that I've been doing. So uh, we still have all of our 
content under the name Cook on Monday Morning, but we've been releasing interviews three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday under the title Cook on Quarantine. Uh, hopefully, when it becomes safe, we'll start to do interviews again in person on Monday morning. But I really appreciate uh, the the amount of people I've been able to get in front of and build with and learn from since quarantine started. I think that's sort of one of the silver linings that um, I've, I've tried to take away ever since, you know, the world has changed since the start of the pandemic. I want to thank Charles Hudson again for taking time out of his busy schedule to just drop some knowledge. You know, I've always admired his work, believe in the principles that he stands on and the values that he's building around. Uh, you know, I wish I was a qualified investor. <laughs> uh, I would do it off the strength, but also because I believe that we need to, you know, be paying attention to uh, our money in a way that builds ownership, you know, equity, as Nipsey Hussle said, is is the objective. And so ownership is the reason why I started this podcast. Uh, I highlight people that have sort of taken ownership over themselves and are building up themselves and their community. That's reflected in the types of guests that you know I ask to come on, people that I really admire uh, and I really support um, that mindset, that ownership mindset. And, you know, none of this is possible without any of you. And we've had sort of like a slow build throughout the course of trying to build this platform, Cook on Monday morning. Please help us by liking, subscribing, sharing the content that you hear here. Uh, I know that, you know, you're inundated with different things to to listen to. And I just deeply appreciate the fact that you listened to this podcast for as long as you have. So. You know, we don't have a huge following today, but we will. And it's going to be because you share the content. So anyone that listens is an avid listener. You can support by just telling a friend about Cook on Monday morning and sharing an episode of Cook on Quarantine. This this uh, production is obviously a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. Uh, people that watch the podcast regularly, regularly, you know, that Luther Harris was my great grandfather. I named my consulting practice after him. Uh, I'm a strategic advising consultant. So I work with different businesses and nonprofits to help them meet their strategic goals. If that's something that you're interested in, I'd be happy to talk to you. Feel free to contact me uh, via email. It's info at Stephon Cook. You can also reach me on social media. Twitter at Stevon Cook, Instagram at Stevon Cook. Um, we are getting ready to launch merchandise. Finally, uh, someone that is a graphic designer, she asked to remain nameless, but she's um, been helping build out a litany of things that we want to make available to the public. It's another way to support the podcast. Obviously, everything that I've been doing has come out of pocket. We never asked for donations. We've never um started a patreon it's not anything i'm necessarily opposed to doing but i just really believed in offering all of this uh, for free and not really asking anything of anyone but this mentality of uh, building ourselves and owning the day and taking uh court taking you know control of our own future and starting with them that's something that resonates with a lot of people and and one way to support what we're doing here is to 
purchase uh, merchandise. So if uh, by the time of this recording, the merchandise isn't yet up, it will be soon. Um, you can make sure you are first to, to see it when we release it, we'll start talking about on my newsletter. You can subscribe to my newsletter at stevoncook.com. Um, you know, I, and I finally just want to say a thank you to everyone that listens to the podcast. Uh, I want to especially thank at this really difficult time, all of our families trying to make do with what they're going to figure out in terms of um, how to support their kids, how to keep their jobs, how to continue to instill important lessons. That's especially true for our single mothers. I want to do something special for all of our single mothers. If you know a single mother that's doing her thing, that's working hard, that's, um, you know, that needs a, a, a night out, I want to pay for dinner for um, a single mother. And we can have it delivered. We can have it uh you know, however is comfortable for her and her family situation, we can make sure that she just has a nice meal out with herself or maybe a friend. Uh, so if you know of any single mothers that you think could use a, a nice dinner, uh, feel free to email me, info at stevoncook.com. Email me their story, why you think they're deserving. It doesn't have to be more than a few sentences paragraph long uh tell me about the single mother and i'd love to treat them to a special night obviously you know it's not going to be anything on a huge budget i'm not you know i'm not a rich man but these small gestures of appreciation and love uh you know i i believe in them i think they go a long way and so i i want to extend that to um you know to a woman that's working hard taking care of her children um so, you know, by ending the podcast, I always just like to thank the people that helped San Francisco remain the incredible, uh, hardworking, beautiful place that it is. Those are our muni drivers, like my father, our teachers, our school lunch workers, um, our custodians, our social workers, our firefighters, our police officers, our EMT workers, our plumbers, you know, all the people that are blue collar um, helping our city run, all of the employers that come to our city to create jobs, and all of the folks doing that gig work, that relentless, difficult gig work, uh, the work of stocking shelves, of delivering food, of picking up passengers, getting them to and fro, exposing yourself to this virus along the way. Uh, I think we all understand that you're essential and this podcast is for you. It's not only for the people that keep San Francisco running, it's for people in cities like Oakland, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Atlanta, Chicago, Newark, uh, New York City, Miami, uh, Orlando, um, the Carolinas, you know, all throughout the Midwest, our folks, all my, all my folks in on the continent of Africa, uh, all my Kenyan and Ghanaian brothers and sisters, thank you for listening. 
all our folks in Haiti and Jamaica. Thank you for listening. This podcast is for you. Uh, So until we meet again, peace, peace, and we out.